Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So I was, uh, I was away last weekend. Last weekend, my wife, Molly, and I uh, went up to uh, Mount Rainier National Park, or Tahoma, as it was called for generations and generations before uh, white European settlers found their way to the Pacific Northwest. And so last Friday, we were driving on those kind of rural roads headed east toward the Nisqually entrance when we passed by a place, by a church I took it to be, because out front it had a sign that said, God's place, a sign that promised that God could be found there, that God's love, that God's hope, that God's wisdom could be found there on Sundays. Um, and I certainly hope that that is true. But last Sunday, we did not go to that place. Uh, not last Sunday, instead, we went to paradise, literally. It turns out in, in Mount Rainier National Park or Tahoma, in the winter, the road from Longmire, which is down in the, the southwest corner down by the Nisqually entrance, up to the visitor center at Paradise, that road is plowed. It's kept open all year round, um, at least during the daytime it's left open. And last Sunday was one of those perfect moments that I talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it had snowed on Saturday. There was a storm on Saturday. We got out a little bit, but mostly we sat by a fire and read books, which was pretty sweet in its own way. But when we woke up on Sunday, the skies were absolutely crystalline blue. It was really cold, but it was also really, really quiet. And so uh, we were staying at the, at the National Park Inn there in Longmire, which if you've ever driven up to Rainier, you've probably driven right by it. A, it was a, a delayed birthday gift for my wife, Molly. And on Sunday morning, I've, I, this was vacation. I brought some, some pictures back, right? So on Sunday morning, this is what it looked like from the veranda. This is what it looked like from the front porch. Man, sit out there and have your Sunday morning coffee. That was pretty sweet. And then you can actually see in the bottom right there, the um, road that heads up. I think it was still closed at that point. It opened at nine o'clock. So we drove from there up to Paradise. And when we got there, we put on snowshoes and we began to walk up the slopes of Mount Rainier. And um, you have big, big views of Mount Rainier right in front of you. But if you turn around, this is the view you get behind you. These, this is the Tatouche Range. It was spectacular that morning. And in fact, on the right side there in the middle, you can see the lodge there, the inn there at Paradise. It's closed, but you can see that it's almost nearly covered with snow. They get like 52 feet of snow up there some years. Uh, and so uh, it was, it was, man, the, the tattoo show was just perfect. And then we kept going higher and higher with our snowshoes. And at one point I turned to my wife, Molly, and I said, this is church today. And eventually we made it up to this, uh, I'm not even sure where it is on the map, but it, it's kind of a plateau, kind of a snow field. It was like being on the top of the world, big expanse of snow. It was still, it was cold, it was quiet. You had big vistas everywhere. And uh, this is what it looked like up toward the summit of Mount Rainier or Tahoma that day. And I can actually see there's some other um, folks on snowshoes. I think they might be skiing who are heading up even higher. It was spectacular. But more than that, it was sacred. Um, I, was, I was very aware of being suffused by the beauty and by the wonder and by the awe of God. In fact, it was so perfect that I actually felt um, some, some melancholy because I knew it was going to have to end. Uh, 
and and it did. In fact, you can take the pictures down now because we had to come back down the mountain. We had to come back to Portland. I still had to go grocery shopping that day. I still had to sweep up the house a little bit that day. And then on Monday, back to work. And so on Monday, I was starting to work on this sermon. I was, I was reading this text from Acts 6 and 7, and I read what we heard earlier where Stephen says, the most high does not dwell in houses made with human hands. And so it had me thinking about that weekend again. Where is God to be found? In God's place? Well, I certainly hope so. In paradise? Last Sunday? Absolutely. But behind that is a bigger uh, and a related question. And that is, um, how do we connect our lives to what God needs to do in the world in the wake of resurrection? The book of Acts tells the story of the first followers of Jesus after the first Easter, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, after Jesus had, as we say in the creed, ascended to, uh, to the heavens uh, to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Well, what now? What now? Well, early on, there's a pretty promising start to this new community. Uh, there are stories of a of kind of a remarkable, pristine community of Christ followers. So in Acts 2, we read, Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And then in Acts 4, we read, uh, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. But if you've ever been part of a community, any community, if you've ever been part of a congregation, if you're part of this congregation, you know that life together can pretty quickly get pretty complicated. And so by chapter six, the beginning of chapter six, and we didn't read this part of the story, but at the beginning of chapter six, one group uh, in the early church uh, began to complain that older women in their group, the widowed women in their group, were not being treated equitably by the other group. And the leaders, the early leaders, the apostles, they were already getting worn out. They were already over-functioning. They were already hitting the wall. And so they appointed these seven deacons to serve, including Stephen. But Stephen surprises everyone. These seven have been appointed to wait on tables. But instead, as we heard at the beginning of our reading today, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people, which all sounds pretty good. But for some of the folks, that was very unsettling. It was very troubling. It was problematic. And so the story we heard is about a deep internal conflict in the early church. Now, remember, they're living in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus changed and changes everything. Uh, it unsettled everything. You don't go back to business as usual after that. It unsettled everything, but it also makes everything possible. The resurrection makes possible the kind of life that Jesus called the kingdom of God. The resurrection of Jesus makes possible the beloved community. And so in these earliest days in the book of Acts, these first followers are trying to figure out how to follow in the ways of the risen Christ in this new world, this new future that's opened up before them. They're trying to figure out how to connect their lives to what God means to do. And most basically, I mean, with Jesus having ascended to the heavens, they're, uh, they're, they're having to figure out where God is to be found. Now, when life gets unsettled, it's, it's a pretty common human tendency for us to seek stability in what is familiar. 
And so this controversy in Acts centers on the temple in Jerusalem. For Jewish people, including all of these first followers of Jesus, uh, the temple was the center of life. Pilgrimages were made to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate the feasts and the festivals. Prayers and sacrifices and thanksgivings were offered at the temple. As we heard earlier, the first followers spent much time together in the temple. And so the temple grounded their lives. I mean, certainly God was to be found there. But even Solomon, Solomon who built the first temple, Solomon knew the Most High does not dwell in hands made with human hands. Does, does not dwell in houses made with human hands. That line from Stephen's speech actually echoes what Solomon himself said at the first dedication of the first temple. And you can read about that back in 1 Kings chapter 8. The Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. Jesus knew it too. In his life, Jesus predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would fall. And sure enough, in the year 70 AD, it did. The Romans destroyed it and destroyed most of Jerusalem for that matter. After his resurrection, and this, this is uh, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised that the Spirit would infuse the disciples and would propel them out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Because what God means to do to redeem the, is to redeem the whole world and all of those who dwell therein. And so the early church, living in the wake of resurrection, is grappling with what centers them, with what grounds them with what will sustain them. And Stephen is challenging this propensity to seek stability in what is familiar. Stephen, full of grace and power, is pressing ahead, and others are pushing back. They accuse him, verse 13, of saying things against this holy place in the law. They accuse him of wanting to change the customs that Moses handed on to us. It is an intense controversy. The questions they're arguing about matter but it pretty quickly spirals out of control. It becomes a life and death struggle. And Stephen becomes the first martyr in the history of the church. Stephen is dragged out of the city and he is stoned. But even there, even in that liminal space between life and death, God is to be found. And so Stephen, like Jesus before him, uh, forgives those who are killing him and commits his spirit to God because Stephen trusts that nothing, nothing in life, nothing in death can separate him from God. Nothing can separate him from the love of God that was in Christ Jesus. This is a challenging story. It's a hard story. It's an important story, though, because it presses us still to ask, where is God to be found? And then how do we connect our lives to what God means to do in the world? Well, all these years later, uh, we are in the midst of the season that's called Eastertide or Easter time. We think of Easter often as just a day in April, but it's actually a season in the church calendar that runs for 50 days from, from Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday, which this year is May 23rd. It's a season in which we have time to ponder what it means to live in a world in which resurrection happened, resurrection that unsettled everything and a resurrection that makes possible everything. Now, in this Eastertide, we're also uh, on the trailing edge of a pandemic. At least we very much hope we are on the trailing edge of a pandemic, a pandemic that unsettled most things in our lives. And when that happens, we still tend to seek stability in what is familiar. And for many of us, 
church is familiar. Many of us grew up going to church. Many of us have been part of this church for a very long time. And so many of us carry with us an internalized vision of what church is or what it ought to be. So when you hear the word church, what comes to mind for you? What image forms in your mind? What's the internalized uh, vision you have of church or what it ought to be, or what it has been? I think for many of us, church is, is people on a Sunday in a place like this. In fact, when I was a kid, I learned a song about that. You might have learned it in Sunday school, too. You remember that one? It was, um, this is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors. And there are all the people. That was church, right? On a Sunday, people in a place like this. Or maybe your internalized vision of church includes um, everyone being able to sit together at the same time around tables for a potluck. Lots of good food, lots of laughter, lots of friends. Or maybe it includes... Um, Everyone being able to sing a cappella four-part harmony together. Well, right now, we can't do any of that, right? The pandemic has unsettled just about everything that we've known and experienced about church. And though there is so much that I miss, uh, that may not be all bad. Because even all of those good things can't contain all of what God means to do in the world. And so like the earliest church, we have to keep figuring out how to follow in the ways of the risen Christ. We have to figure out how to connect our lives to what God means to do. We have to keep asking that question, where is God to be found? Well, recently I read uh, an interesting essay titled uh, The Post-Pandemic Church. The pandemic has changed our lives. Um, hopefully we're on the trailing edge. And this then becomes a chance for us to think about how the ways we do church might change. And so the author of that essay had, had a few observations. One of his observations was this, that the social and spiritual capital connected with congregational life will be increasingly valuable in a post-pandemic culture. A lot of life has migrated online for us, right? That was happening before COVID, but certainly the pandemic accelerated that movement of much of our lives online. It's, it's remarkable how fast all of us learned how to get on Zoom or Teams or whatever other platform you might be using. Um, during this pandemic, a lot of people have been working online at home. And frankly, after this pandemic, I'm not sure that's gonna change for a lot of people. I suspect a lot of work will still be done online in bedrooms, studies, kitchen tables at home. Um, we shop online, we play online, uh, we get medical care online. And so increasingly we are detached from other people we are detached from what makes us human. Frederick Buechner, who's uh, I've always found to be a very wise spiritual guide, uh, wrote, you can survive on your own, you can grow strong on your own, you can prevail on your own, but you cannot become human on your own. We need each other to know who we are. We need each other to become fully human. And so as more and more of life migrates online, and let me just say parenthetically, that's not all bad. I'm pretty happy to have a lot of church committee meetings online on Zoom. I'm happy to be able to eat dinner and sit at the table until about 6.58 and walk 20 feet to the desk, turn on my computer and be in a, in, in a committee meeting. I'm pretty sure a fair bit of that's going to continue on. But as more and more of life migrates online, it's going to be more and more important for us as church to create multiple spaces where we can connect our lives, 
where we can talk honestly with, with each other, where we can uh, talk deeply about things that matter, where we can practice grace together, learn how to be merciful together, strive together for equity. And I'm not quite sure what that's gonna look like from here. And it might be different from what we've done before, but it will be terrifically important in the days ahead. Second, um, this pandemic gives us a chance to rethink what counts, literally what counts. Most churches count two things. We count attendance and we count the offering. Uh, those are easy to count. They're easy to quantify. And, you know, attendance and giving can be helpful indicators of, of the vitality of a congregation. And in this pandemic, uh, we have continued to count the offering. And on behalf of the table, the leadership table, let me say we, we are terrifically grateful for your ongoing commitment to the church, your generosity in funding the ministries of the church, both here in Portland and around the world. But church doesn't really exist to collect funds and keep accounts. Um, in this pandemic, it's proved really hard to count attendance. We can count how many devices are on Zoom. We have 70, 73 devices right now. I don't know how many we have on Facebook, but I know somebody counts that. But we really don't know how many people are joining on Sunday or how many people watch the service later. And anyway, church ought to be about more than just getting people in the door, or getting people to join us online. So the question is, what, what should we be counting? I remember something that David Johnson uh, said to me once, and this is something he had learned in his work in the nonprofit world. He said, you measure what you treasure. You measure what you treasure. So what do we treasure? Because that will tell us what we ought to measure. Now, I, I don't know how you'd spread, set up a spreadsheet to chart this, but I would like to know um, how much we're growing in our capacity to love our neighbors as ourselves. I would like to know how much we are growing in our ability to be attentive and to, and to be responsive to the spirit that Jesus promised would always be with us. I'd like to know how much we're growing in our commitment to do justice and to love mercy. I'd like to be able to measure the depth of grace in our relationships. I'd like to be able to measure the depth of our trust in the way and the truth and the life of Jesus. I'd like to be able to measure how much this work we're doing, this anti-racism work we're doing, is shifting our hearts and our minds. What else? We're going to keep counting the offering. Uh, for one thing, we have to. We're legally obligated to. And we want to be uh, as, as vulnerable and transparent as possible. We want to be good stewards. But this pandemic gives us a chance to rethink what else counts. You measure what you treasure. Third, in this pandemic, uh, we've developed a more expansive conception of worship. We've had to. We've had to trust that the Most High does not dwell in houses or sanctuaries or meeting houses built by human hands because we've not been able to be here. And I am eager for the day that we can come back in person and when we can greet each other in person, when we can sing together in person, when we can share the bread and cup of the Lord's table in person, because our faith is fundamentally embodied. It is incarnational. It is tangible. It is earthy. But we have also learned that we can connect online in genuine acts of worship. And that means that people who are at a distance or people who are ill or people who are elderly and can't get out can join in the worship of the church. 
Last month, we did a poll, and, and a lot of you responded. I think more than 90 of you responded uh, about our experience of worship in the midst of the pandemic. And one of the things we heard is that people are very eager to worship in person again. A lot of people said, we are definitely planning to be back on Sundays at the PMC Meeting House, at least most Sundays. But we also heard when it's been a really hard week, or when maybe one of the kids is sick, or when it is just more energy than you've got to get everyone dressed, get them in the car and drive what for some of you is a long distance to get here. We heard it would be really nice to be able to join worship in the kitchen with a cup of coffee in your PJs. And if you have to work on Sundays, or if your kid has a soccer tournament on Sunday, or if you wanna go snowshoeing in paradise on a Sunday, it's meaningful to be able to be part of the service even if you can't be there. Now, that's not church in the way many of us grew up knowing it. That's not the internalized vision probably any of us carried with us. And it's probably gonna be a little bit of a challenge for some of us to not get too judgy about the decisions other people make. But I'm glad for us to explore a more expansive conception of worship and what it can mean for us in our community and in our life with God. Uh, last, in the midst of this pandemic, there's been a resurgent movement for racial justice uh, in this country. And so here at Portland Mennonite Church, we've been reading, we've been talking, we've been praying, we've been learning. And among other things, it's helped me to recognize that my internalized vision of church is very white. And not just because most people in my vision are white, but it has to do as well with, with the ways that we do worship. It's what I grew up with. Uh, you know, and as part of the dominant culture in this country, it's easy to assume that that's the norm. And, uh, you know, when life's unsettled, we do tend to seek stability in what is familiar. But if we believe that the resurrection of Christ makes possible the beloved community, a multicultural, multinational, multivocal community that embodies the love and the justice of Jesus, um, then we have a lot of work to do. And uh, our leadership table here at Portland Mennonite Church is uh, making plans for an anti-racist audit of our congregational um, life. You know, it's hard to see what, um, what's so familiar to us. And so we believe it'll be really helpful to have folks from beyond our congregation, especially people of color, take a look at the way we are functioning together and to make suggestions, make recommendations for how we can move more and more toward that vision of the beloved community. And so in the weeks ahead, we'll have a lot more to say about that process. It is almost certainly going to change the way that we do church. And it's going to force us to continue to do uh, what this scripture calls us to do, to work. It's the work of figuring out what's at the core of our faith. It's the work of figuring out what's connected to our own cultural practices and assumptions and preferences. And it's the work of figuring out what's needed for the church to be a community where everyone can find God, where together we can connect our lives to what God means to do in us and in the world. And so in this Easter tide, on this trailing edge of the pandemic, with the work that we've been given to do, may we, like Stephen, be filled uh, with the grace and with the power of the risen Christ. Amen.